Good morning. We are people of life. Amen? We are people who celebrate life in Christ. Amen? But in order for there to be life, there must be death. We find that in all areas. Jesus tells us that before a seed can grow, that plant must die. A part of it must die to release that seed. And in the death and decomposition of the soil comes life. This is also true in the spiritual realm. That there must be death to precede life. And here's where we are in the narrative of Jesus' ministry. That death must precede life. And so today we're going to spend some time on the facts of Jesus' death. And we're going to address a little along the way about the circumstances. Because the facts are important. What happened and what the inspired writers of Scripture recorded is important. But what is even more important is what you do with those facts. And how you apply them. And how those facts influence and determine the, the, how you view everything else. Because what we know about Jesus' death and resurrection, and you cannot separate the two, determines everything else in our faith and practice. And so this morning, this is not really going to be a typical sermon. So we are going to walk through the text, and we're certainly going to address what is here, but I actually am going to spend quite a bit of application at the end. Because I want us to look at what happens when you get these facts wrong, and when you misapply them, and what happens when you don't understand the death and resurrection of Christ. Because there are many people who would call themselves Christians, many people who are in Christian churches who do not understand the implications of the death and resurrection of Christ. And if you do not understand this, you do not understand the gospel. If Jesus did not die as fully God and as fully man, and did not finish what was required for salvation, there is no good news, there is no gospel. And without the resurrection, there is no confirmation of it. So I want to spend some time later on in that. Um, And we're going to discuss what many have done with those facts. I'm going to jump right into the text. We'll walk through our text this morning, and then we'll get to some application later on. So open your Bibles with me, if you have them, to John chapter 19. John chapter 19, we're picking up in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first, and the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it is born witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture saying, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And after these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and he took away the body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen, 
cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb, in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Let's pray. Lord, as we approach this text this morning, which for many of us have become redundant details, many of us have heard this many times and maybe we've become immune or even callous to what John wants us to hear. Maybe some of us, this is the first time we're hearing this or the first time we've ever considered these. And in either case, Lord, we know that your word is living and active. And I pray that your spirit would work in our hearts and minds, that your spirit would work through me, that my words would not be my own, that they would be to the praise and glory of your name, that everything we do here this morning would exalt Jesus Christ for who he is, our Lord, our Savior, our intercessor, our high priest, our king, our brother, the firstborn among creation, creator of all things, the Alpha, the Omega, risen Lord. And as we open your word today, Lord, let it govern everything else that we speak of. And as we look at many of the errors that exist in our world and in our culture today, that we have the heart of the Apostle Paul that wants every false gospel to be put to death because there is no life apart from the death of resurrection and perfect atonement of Jesus Christ. Let us be a people who are rooted in the gospel, who are rooted in truth, and who are zealous for your name and your holiness and the purity of your gospel in which all of our assurance of salvation rests. We ask this in the name of the one who we're going to talk about this morning, the one who brings us all here and gathers us in his name, Jesus, the only name by which one can be saved and fully saved by faith in him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So as you can tell, i got a little bit of an agenda this morning with this, this text. So we're transitioning this week from where we were last week. We finished on the great words of Jesus on the cross, it is finished. And we went through that litany of things that, are, that were finished in Christ. And I probably forgot many. We looked at because of Him, the requirements of the law are finished. Because of Him, the sacrifice for sin, the final sin. The old covenant in Him finished. The ever, and everything that, that comes along with it. It was accomplished in His death. His death, His shedding of blood, sealed the completion of the old covenant and the institution of the new. And it is confirmed by his resurrection that he is not dead and that was not the end of the story, but because of new life in him, we can have new life because of everything he accomplished. And so as we approach our text this morning and we transition into the details of John or Jesus' death, John does not address all of the details that the other synoptics do. And so each of them has their own purpose and their own perspective. And so we're not going to address all those. Uh, and so I do encourage you, though, to read the accounts of the, the synoptics, of so Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Uh, read them. If you don't know where they are, go to the end of each book and go back about a chapter or two, and you will find the, the account of Jesus' 
uh, crucifixion, death, and resurrection, and we get a complete picture from putting together these details. But this morning, I want to focus on John, what John focuses on, and then we're going to spend some time in application uh, like I mentioned. So picking up in verse 31, since it was the day of preparation, uh, and so this is important for, for us to stand before we go forward, John is keying in, keying in on the Jewish timeline here. So he's keying in on, on where this is in, in regards to the week of Passover. If you remember, Jesus came in the, tri- in the triumphal entry six days ago. So six days before the feast. So he's just been here a few days. That was chapter 12. We were there months ago. But this is just a few days. And so John is kind of setting uh, the, the, the scene here. The, the day of preparation. And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath. For that Sabbath was a high day. So before we go on, let's talk about the day of preparation. So for the Jew, your Sabbath would begin at sundown on Friday evening. You would prepare that entire day because you could do no work on that Sabbath. So anything that needed to be done that would be considered work would have to be done before the sun went down. So this is still Friday for them. And so because they were concerned with the external observances, they didn't want to break the Sabbath, they had to make sure that these bodies were, were, were brought down any work any of the work in preserving the bodies, burying the bodies, was done before the Sabbath. So there's always a preparation for the Sabbath. But now we've got to put ourselves in the, in the timeline of the Passover week, and this is important. So what, from what we understand, Thursday evening would have been the Passover feast which Jesus had with his disciples. And if you remember the Exodus account, they would have uh, had a meal with, with unleavened bread, and then after that, they would sacrifice the Passover lamb. They would shed the blood. So you've got the meal and then the blood, and the blood was painted over the doorpost so that they could be delivered from their slavery and to be delivered from death. And so what's happening here is co- coinciding with what is happening um, in the Passover ritual. But also, this particular Sabbath was a high Sabbath meaning it was a day that was set apart from all other Sabbaths because it actually set the tone for the rest of the week of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so we find ourselves that this Sabbath is going to be a high Sabbath. So not only are you preparing for a normal Sabbath, but you are, are preparing for the Passover week, which is the, the culmination of their entire year. But also what's really interesting is that Sunday, which would be the first day of the week, was a particular celebration. It was a celebration of, the, of the, the Feast of First Fruits. And so this was to remind them that the first things would come out of the, the, the ground after the dead of winter. The first thing that comes out of ground would be, would be the, the, the sign of new life. And it would be praise and glory to God because he gave them another year of harvest. Now we also know that that was the day that Jesus rose from the grave. And so as we walk through this, I mean, they are preparing for the blood of the Passover lamb to be shed, um, to mark the deliverance from their, their slavery in Egypt. And then they're looking forward to this day of, of first fruit when, when new life will come out of the dead of, of winter. Anyone see any symbolism here? So when John brings this up, he knows his Jude- Jewish audiences are making these connections. And so the Jews have a purpose. They want to observe the external law as they should. Because Deuteronomy 21 tells us, verse 22 and 23, And if a man has committed a crime punishable by death, and if he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on that tree, but you shall bury him the same day. 
For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile the land that the Lord your God has given you for an inheritance. This is the last act of the Jews mentioned by John. And it is one of religious observance. These murderers are still concerned with the external observances. But it amazes me that in God's providence, the law is still upheld even in Jesus' death. So that's what's going on. That's their, their, their motivation here. They don't want anyone defiling themselves and touching a dead body on, on, on the Sabbath. And uh, they're trying to expedite this whole process. So they go and tell Pilate. Pilate sends the soldiers. So the soldiers came and broke um, the legs of the first and the other who had been crucified with him. Now, if you don't understand crucifixion, you don't understand what's going on here. So quickly... When someone is on the, on the cross, the, not to mention all of the scourging that they would take, their, their, bo- their back is wide open, being torn down this splintered log. But the worst part about it was the asphyxiation, that you cannot breathe because of the weight of your, of your own body. It has all the strength you can to push yourself up to take a breath. And so the only hope you had of staying alive was having enough strength in your legs to lift your lungs open enough to bring in air. So the Romans were particularly cruel. They would have left them on there for days. But this is actually an act of mercy. So the soldiers would come by with a large mallet and break their legs so that they would fall and they could no longer bring air into their lungs and they would shortly die. This is what is going on here. And this happened with the other two who were on the cross. But we get to verse 33. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now this is, this is important. And we're going to get here and John's going to tell us why this is important. John wants to emphasize here that he's already dead. They didn't need to add any additional me- measures. But the Romans were so good at killing that they had to add an extra measure. Because here's another thing we, we don't understand so we get to this, this next verse. Not only was the Roman soldier's reputation on the line of someone who was condemned to death was to die, but his reputation was also on the line. If that person didn't die, you would die in their place. So if you were one of the soldiers tasked with making sure these men died and they lived, you would be put to death. So this soldier who's very efficient at killing wants to make sure that Jesus is really dead. Verse 34, but one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. So he knew the exact spot as to where to make sure that he was actually dead. Um, now, he wanted to make sure he was dead, and not, only, not just mostly dead, but really dead. Like dead, dead. Well, those of you who got that, thank you. Um, and so there are many speculations on why does John include these details. And I read... Many people who would give explanations of the, um, the blood is, uh, is uh, the blood of communion and water is baptism. It's the two sacraments coming out of him. And I've read a, a, a lot of allegory. And sure, there may be a lot of, a lot of symbolism here. But you see what, what John repeats over and over, that he's already dead. And now a spear is, is showing that water and, and blood, and there's all kinds of um, medical discussions about this. But John is just proving, if nothing else, that he's, he's actually dead. He actually died on the cross because he knew 
what would happen. He knew how the Jews were going to try to spin this. But also this is amazing because John writes this in his 90s. And he still vividly remembers watching Jesus' body and the spear go in him and the blood and water come out. Even in his old age, this is still fresh in his mind. Now, as I was reading this week, I'm trying to make sure I understand this and make sure is there any symbolism in this. And uh, there's, I read many medical opinions on this. And there is as many medical opinions as there are commentaries on, on John. Uh, but one thing stuck out to me. So I don't know if you guys have ever read this. It's a great book, uh, Lee Strobel's Case for Christ. Uh, It's a fantastic journey of an atheist who goes, he's an atheist investigative reporter in Chicago, and he goes and investigates, or excuse me, and interviews an expert in every field pertaining to uh, the death and resurrection of, of Christ. And so one of them, he speaks with this medical doctor. And so they go through this entire conversation back and forth with a bunch of terms that I would never be able to pronounce, a bunch of things I would never be able to understand. And so instead of reciting all of that conversation for you, I want to I go over the last and most impactful portion of that conversation. So you can read, it's a, it's a great book if you don't have it. Um, it's, it's a very good read. But what struck me is at the end of this conversation, he asks all these technical questions, and so here's how he ends the conversation with this, this doctor, um, Alex Methero. And he says, Alex, before I let you go, let me ask your opinion about something. Not your medical opinion, not your scientific evaluation, just something from the heart. And I felt him let down his guard a little bit, and he said, yes, I'll try. So then Lee says, Jesus in, uh, intentionally walked into the arms of his betrayer. He didn't resist arrest. He didn't defend himself at his trial. It was clear that he was willingly subjecting himself to what you describe as a humiliating and agonizing form of torture. And I'd like to know why. What could possibly have motivated a person to agree to endure this sort of punishment? Alexander Metherell, the man of his time, not the doctor, searched for the right words. Frankly, he said, I don't think a typical person could have done it. But Jesus knew what was coming, and he was willing to go through it because this was the only way he could redeem us, by serving as our substitute and paying the death penalty that we deserve because of our rebellion against God. That is his whole mission in coming to earth. Having said that, I could still sense that Methrel's relentlessly rational and logical and organized mind was continuing to crunch down on my question in its most basic, non-reducible answer. So when you ask what motivated him, he concluded, well, I suppose the answer could be summed up in one word, and that would be love. Driving away that night, it was this answer that played over and over in my mind. And what struck me about that is they had a conversation for hours about every medical detail. But what was it that pierced his heart on the way home? It was the gospel. It was the gospel that this man, Jesus Christ, would inflict all of this upon himself willingly to pay the price we deserve in the name of love. That struck him more than all of the facts in the world. And so for us, when we read these texts, don't be intimidated that you don't know how to answer all of these things medically or we don't have the answers to questions that Scripture does not ask. It is the gospel that changes people's hearts and minds. It is the truth that Jesus Christ, the perfect God-man, 
died on a cross for sins and rose again that those who have faith in him might rise again to new life. And that love of the Father for the Son that the Son shows on us is what pierces hearts. Even if you don't have the answer to what the piercing of the spear means. So hopefully that is an encouragement to you. And but so, so John goes on to unfold here his witness. And John, again, never uses his, his first name, but he speaks of a particular witness here in verse 35. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you may also believe. This is John's stated purpose on the same page in your Bible, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, what's written in this book, is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And by believing in him, you may have life in his name. This is a book of life. This is a gospel of life. John is not concerned with his death primarily. He gives us some some facts, but ultimately, it is so that you believe. And he even says again at the end of chapter 21, verse 24, this is the disciple, referring in the third person, who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things, and we know that his testimony is true. I'm writing this because I was there. I'm writing this, I am his disciple. But because I want no credit for this, I will not even speak my own name. But I will tell you that whoever's writing this was there. And so then he goes on and he tells us, verse 36, for these things took place that the scriptures might be fulfilled, not one of his bones will be broken. So one of the scriptures here, Psalm 34, this is a direct quote from Psalm 34. Look at the the, the context here, verse 19 and 20. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. He keeps all his bones, not one of them is broken. It's a direct quote from Psalm 34, verse 19 and 20. The righteous one, not one of his bones will be broken. John sees this as a fulfillment of Scripture. But also a step further. This is going on during Passover. There's another important detail of Passover that we did not discuss. Look at Exodus chapter 12, verse 36. This is speaking of the spotless lamb without blemish that would be eaten for the Passover meal that would be, the blood would be put on the doorpost for deliverance. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of its flesh outside the house and you shall not break any of its bones. In order to be a Passover lamb, you must not have any bones broken. And John did not miss this. He mentions the Passover details. He reminds them of when this is going on and reminds them that in order to be a spotless sacrifice, you cannot have one broken bone. And neither was this spotless sacrifice have any bones broken. Paul connects this when he's speaking to the Corinthians as they, they distort uh, the, uh, the uh, communion, which is an, an extension of, of Passover. And he speaks of the, the feast. Look at the language Paul uses in a spiritual sense. Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. Speaking of God's people as unleavened bread. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with old leaven, not with, with dead things, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. 
Paul connects Jesus as the Passover lamb. John identifies the Passover lamb in this instance. This is sacrificial. Don't pity the man on the cross because there's a purpose in this. The same way the Jews were, back, were to look back to the, the Passover in Egypt, their deliverance from slavery. Now, looking back, every time we see the cross and every time we see the blood of Christ and no bones being broken, we see our deliverance from spiritual slavery. John does not want us to miss this. And if you don't understand Jesus' death as the perfect, spotless lamb, the final atonement for sin, his death has no weight and it has no meaning. We can't miss this. And as we've seen in our Deuteronomy study, if you've joined us for that, God reminds his people all the time, I'm the one who brought you out of slavery. I'm the one who redeemed you. I'm the one who brought you out of that. The God of the New Testament is not doing anything different. I'm the one who redeemed you from sin. I'm the one who shed blood for you, who delivered you from your own sin, from your slavery to sin, but also like they were delivered from the the death of the firstborn in Egypt, we are delivered from death through Christ. Symbolism is rich here. And John goes on. It's not, not just that only. And again, verse 37, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is a great prophecy about the day of the Lord in Zechariah 12. Zechariah 12, verse 10 says, And I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that, pay attention to these words, this is Zechariah, hundreds of years before Jesus, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced. In the same breath, the Lord says, when they look on me and on him who they have pierced. Some of that might hit you guys later. They shall mourn for him as one who mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Jesus' disciples are weeping at the cross. So there is an immediate fulfillment here. They will look on the one that they have pierced and they will recognize this. But there's an ultimate fulfillment. Look at Revelation 1.17. This is the day of the Lord that Zechariah prophesied about and now John prophesies about in Zechariah. Actually, you know what? Um, Verse... Yeah, just verse 7 is on the screen, forgive me. But I want to back up a little bit. So if you have your Bibles, uh, Revelation 1, verse 5. So this is in Paul's introduction to Revelation. Look how he describes Jesus. So Revelation, last book in your Bible, chapter 1, verse 5. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, important here, and the ruler of the kings of earth, All authority, all power, born out of the dead, this first fruits, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. What does the death and resurrection of Christ mean? It means freedom by the blood of Christ. And made us a kingdom, priest to God and a father, uh, as priest to, to God, to his God and father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever, amen. Behold, he is coming in the clouds. What do we anticipate? The second coming of Christ, and everyone will see him even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. The ultimate fulfillment is the one who's pierced on the cross is going to come back one day. He's going to come back as a king who rules all the kingdoms of the earth to bring into his own, his, his eternal kingdom. But those who pierced him, not just the one who had the spear in his hand, but every one who agreed with his crucifixion, everyone who rejected him, everyone who says, I will take my sin on myself, they will wail when he comes back. 
because he is coming back with power and might. He is coming back on the clouds in thunder. And he is described as the one who is pierced. John is speaking from past fulfillment to future prophecy in one moment here. These details are important. So then he moves on to his burial. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly, for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus. And Pilate gave him permission, so he came and took away his body. Joseph is an interesting figure because we don't know a lot about his history or what happens after this, but he's mentioned in every gospel. Matthew says he's a rich man. He's a disciple who put Jesus in his own freshly cut tomb. Mark says he's a respected member of the council who's looking for the kingdom of God, and he's bold in his approach to Pilate. Luke says he's a good, righteous man who did not consent to their decision and their action. John said he's scared of the Jews. This man's a member of the council. And so either he didn't oppose them publicly or he wasn't there for the vote. But now in a moment of boldness, he goes before Pilate. And this was really out of the ordinary for someone to take a body of a murderer, especially one of a a Jew in in high position. So in the moments after Jesus' death, his allegiance to him is, is clear. And he's an interesting figure in these accounts. This is also a great fulfillment of Isaiah 53, which we've spent so much time on these past few weeks because every detail of Isaiah 53 applies to the suffering servant, Christ our Lord. Look at these details in Isaiah 53. Let's connect all this. He was oppressed, verse 7. Isaiah 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. As for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, put to dead, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked. Remember last week we talked about he died with sinners. He died as sin to save sinners. And with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth down to the letter Isaiah 53 fulfilled in Christ. Even after his death, a rich man is responsible for burying him, and John picks up on this. Then we bring in the other character in this burial, Nicodemus. Verse 39, Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes and all that stuff. So if you remember, way back in chapter 3, Nicodemus has this famous conversation with, with Jesus. And our whole identity of being born again and the gospel being for God so loved the world is in the context of the conversation with Nicodemus. And this is fascinating because Nicodemus, this powerful man, comes crawling to Jesus in the middle of the night and asks questions of him. And he knows that, you know, unless you are from God, you could not do any of these things. Jesus tells him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot come to see the kingdom of God. And so Nicodemus is wrestling with this in his mind. Like, how can someone be born again? How can they go back into their their mother's womb? And Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus unveils uh, regeneration for him, new life through the Spirit in him. This, This great conversation that he still wrestles with. And Jesus 
tells them, you're a teacher of Israel. If you can't understand you know, normal things, how can you understand heavenly things? But we don't know what happened to Nicodemus after this. But we do know that these words never left Nicodemus. Because in Jesus' final moments, not all the Jews deserted him. This, this conversation of you must be born again. Jesus unveiled the behind the scenes of salvation to Nicodemus. And here he is, along with Joseph of Arimathea, these two very powerful Jews who use their power and their influence and their money to serve the Lord in his final hour. And so this man, Nicodemus, who was scared to go in the middle of the night, is now putting his money where his mouth is. So they converted this to English, 100 pounds. So, um, or excuse me, 75 pounds. This is 100 litres, which is about 12 ounces. So figure 75 pounds of ointment and aromatics to put on the body. This is a little bit of an investment, and it's going to be a big haul getting it there. He did not think this was any ordinary burial. He did not take this lightly. He didn't just, you know throw a, a few incense candles in there. He brought 75 pounds with him. And then they began to prepare his body for burial. Verse 40. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen and cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. So the Jews did not like the Egyptians defile the, the, the body and cut it out and, uh, and um, replace its organs and embalm it and all that. What they would do is they would anoint the, the body. This is very meticulous work. They would anoint the body with aloes and salves and all that. Uh, they would put aromatics, uh, different flowers and different herbs and, and different oils on the body as they wrapped it with, with linen strips. And so there would be layer after layer of this. What we would understand is kind of mummy wrapping is, is what they did. And in between each layer, that's where these aloes and uh, these, these spices went. So this is very intricate work that these two noble men took upon themselves, which would be way below their, their, their pay grade. So this in itself shows you the importance of this and the impact that it had on these two very powerful men. And then John gives us another detail here. Now in the place where he was crucified, verse 41, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one has yet been laid. So one of the things, we do not know the exact location of this. Uh, there's... Many people speculate about it. And it's a good thing that we do not know the location of this. Because the Roman Catholic Church would probably charge admission, probably make it a sacrament, and it, this place would end up being more important than, than Christ. It would give, be given more honor than, than Christ, and it would completely defeat the point. We don't need to know where he was buried because that doesn't matter because he's alive. But what's important about this is it was a new tomb. So what we don't know about that culture either is that in that culture, it was very common to share tombs and rent them out. Like you would bury your, 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 your um, family member in there for a time just to put on a big show, and then when someone else needed it, they may remove the bones, or they, they just may add, add body on top of body. But for the one who's to redeem the grave, his grave is even sanctified. His grave is set apart for him that nothing else defiled. There is no dead man's bones in this grave. That is an important detail as well. So now John talks about the proximity in verse 42. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, bring it back to where he started, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. Joseph of Arimathea is the one who's taking the initiative. He's got a tomb in the garden. It's close by. 
He's, he gives Pilate the whole sales pitch, and this is how this, this happens. So he's got a new tomb. He's got a proper burial. No laws were, were broken. So here's where we end our, the, the, the facts that, that John includes. Uh, just a couple more things to note that you know, we're going to get into this next week a little bit, but the Jews took every precaution. They wanted to make sure he was really dead and that he would not fulfill what he promised he would and rise again. So they, they, put, they put guards out there. They roll a big stone in front of it, which was also customary. Um, and as you'll, you'll, you'll see, there's some plotting and scheming going on. So why did John include what he did? Why did John include the details about him being dead? Why did he emphasize that? Why did John bring in the detail about the spear and the blood and the water that no one else does? Well, what we don't understand is that in John's day, there was uh, a group of heretics called the Docetic Gnostics. So the, the Gnostics believed in a distinction between the spiritual and the physical. Spiritual good, physical bad. The Docetic Gnostics would call themselves Christians, but they argued that Jesus did not have a real body. That Jesus only appeared to have a real body and walked around in this, this kind of visibly spiritual form. And so this was a heresy that arose around the time of John. And we don't know this for, for sure, but there's probably a good chance that John is making sure that no one can start to make claims that are not true about Jesus. This is really a man. He really died. There was really blood and water coming out of him. His inner fluids were, were spilled out in front of me. So that no one can say that the resurrected Jesus was not a, a real person. So that's what John was dealing with in his day. But what about our day? And so I want us to put what we know to the test. And I want us to think about what we've learned this morning and what we know uh, in, in, in all of, of our studies and look at why it is important to discern the facts about Jesus' death, resurrection, and salvation. Now, we will have this question all the time. Is someone a Christian? Is this group Christian? And we'll always ask two questions. You should know this, but if not, who is Jesus and what has he done? The person and work of Jesus Christ, that will tell you everything you need to know about whether this person is a Christian or not, or whether this group is a, a, a Christian or not. Do we share the same faith, or are we just using similar words and talking about two completely different things? If Jesus is not fully God and fully man, if he is not one with the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, we're talking about a different Jesus. If Jesus did not rise from the grave as he said, if he did not pay the final price for sins as scripture tells us, if he is not reigning in, in, in glory, if he did not do everything accomplished for reconciliation with God, then we are not talking about the same work. And so we must weigh everything against the person and work of Jesus Christ. So now what does it tell us about other religions and other faiths that are claiming to be Christian? So I'm going to do like the Apostle Paul often does. The Apostle Paul likes to name names and tells of those who are promoting false gospels and who are leading those astray. And I will continue in the language of the Apostle Paul and say that if anyone comes to you preaching a different gospel, that they should be accursed. And I'll continue with the Apostle Paul who says, I wish they would emasculate themselves, literally in the Greek, cut themselves off if you preach a different gospel than what we preach and so we are going to name names. We're going to begin with my favorite and your favorite uninvited neighborhood guest, the Jehovah's Witnesses. I did a lot of research so you guys don't have to. I went into the dark depths of the web 
jw.org, and uh, pulled it off their website. It's pretty easy. It's there for display. So it's very simple and repetitive message, yet really unclear as to what their, their faith is in and what is actually happening. First, Jesus is not God. Jesus was a created being, the first of all created beings, a.k.a. the Archangel Michael, official position of the Jehovah's Witnesses. He had a perfect mind and body, and he lived a sinless life. He did die, and in his death, he purchased a ransom, not a redemption, a ransom he paid the price for the opportunity to be set free from sin and death. Only when you are truly sorry and repent enough. They deny that Jesus died on the cross. They only call it a beam. They call the cross a pagan symbol, and anyone who uses it a pagan. We are pagans, according to Jehovah's Witnesses. Also, Jesus could not resurrect himself as he said. The Father has given me authority to lay my life down, and I take it back up, because Jesus had no power in himself. Jehovah, who is uh, a different God, Jesus is a lesser God, Jehovah had to resurrect him. And they deny that he actually had a bodily resurrection. He his, he, he died, he truly died, he had a spiritual resurrection. And he was the, the, the first exalted among the, the spirit people. That's their, their term. So basically, kind of a powerful shapeshifter. That every time he appeared to the, the disciples, it was, a, it was a different spiritual form that only appeared physical. He's, he's kind of like an angel who can make themselves disappear and then disappear. So this is the, the Jesus that they believe in. And, but what they most emphasize on is that Jesus' death proves that humans can remain loyal. This is a big thing that comes up over and over again. Because Jesus was obedient, we can also be obedient. And so Jesus, because of his, his perfection, we also can attain or can be perfectly obedient. So salvation, as they understand it, comes from knowing more about Jehovah by reading their, their New World Translation, translated by uh, seven people, one of them only taking Greek at like a high school level, the, all, the, the rest of them uh, kind of determining what the, the text is. Uh, and so in addition to reading the, the, the New World Testament, you must demonstrate and continue faith in Jesus. So your faith is only determined by if you demonstrate and continue it. How you continue it? By doing works. Lots of works. You know why they're at, at your door? They're trying to continue and demonstrate their faith. And you must attend the memorial. This is my favorite. So one time they came to my house and they invited me to this memorial of Jesus' death. And I thought it was weird. Why do you keep talking about his, his death? They have more emphasis on his death than anything. So their memorial, which similar to our communion but very different, they associate it with the Passover, which we just talked about, only happens once a year. And there's even this, this really creepy video on, on their website. Come with us and, and join us in this memorial of Jesus' death. But the funny thing, if you watch the video, they pass the plate and no one touches it. No one can partake. Do you know why? Because only the 144,000 are actually saved. So no one, and they're all dead, so no one alive today can actually partake of, of communion. Come and celebrate this, but don't touch it. They are called the little flock. They're the only ones who are saved. They're the only ones who go to heaven. And they reign up with Jesus. But everyone else here on earth... They get a second chance because Jesus died for the opportunity to be saved from death. And so what that means is they will be resurrected uh, at the end of days when the apocalypse comes and they have a thousand years to try to earn their salvation, to try to earn eternal life. If you're faithful for a thousand years, then you might have eternal life. That is a good news gospel, isn't it? 
and their hope is perfected life here on this earth, unchanged. There's no eternal punishment. The wicked are just annihilated. So best case scenario, you're obedient for a thousand years and live on this earth forever. Worst case scenario, wiped off the face of the map. That is one gospel. Um, second ones, call these the citizens of Asgard. So if you know North mythology or just Marvel movies, it's Thor's home planet where you can be a god and, and you can kind of rule your own planet. This is Mormonism. The whole goal is to be your own god and to rule your own planet. Uh, and so they believe in the death and resurrection of Christ, but who died and what happens after the resurrection is so different from what we see in Scripture. And this was a really weird wormhole. I spent a lot of time on, it was LDS.org, now it's um, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints.org, long name. But, so, did a lot of work so you didn't have to, and there's a lot of convoluted stuff here. They use a lot of the same terms, but very different meanings. Let me run down some of this. Jesus, in their estimation, was the most worthy of the pre-mortal council. Think about that, pre-mortal. That means you are a spirit before you take on a body. So Jesus proved himself in this school of you know, pre-mortal righteousness to take on flesh, hopefully to become a god again. So he is literally a god, little g, in flesh, one among many. Heavenly Father is another god. Holy Ghost is another god. As you notice, the word God is a very different thing to them. And the goal is to be exalted to Jesus' God status. And the weird thing here is that when they speak of Jesus' death and resurrection, they, every time they mention God died, God suffered, God died. The emphasis is on God dying because they view him as one God among many. So here's what they think his death accomplishes. His death removes original sin from every person, uh, their version of what they call atonement, at one basically uh, means that you are now neutral before God. And so that makes resurrection possible. That's what defeating death means. But salvation only happens. Salvation to them is being exalted to godhood like Jesus was. It requires Mormon membership, obedience to the church teachings and leaders, Mormon baptism, tithing, ordination, marriage, temple rites, no alcohol, no coffee, no tea, white underwear, a long list of things. Another very encouraging gospel, right? And there are three levels of, of heaven, which basically everyone except for Hitler and a couple child molesters won't go to. Yeah. And so I quoted this directly from their website. This kind of sums it up. Having already offered the atonement on our behalf, Christ has done his part. The rest will depend entirely upon ourselves. That is the Mormon gospel in a nutshell. Here's another one. Got a question for you. How many Roman Catholics are assured of their salvation? None. Well, aren't the Roman Catholics really Christian? And when you read, I've read through the Roman Catholic Catechism many times. They use the same words. They use a lot of scripture. And it sounds so close. But what they mean and how they apply it to the rest of their doctrine is very different. They get the person of Christ right. They get the Trinity and the person of Christ. They get all the details right, but how they apply it is very different. In their catechism, it states, justification reinstates us in God's grace. Justification does not declare you righteous. It reinstates you in God's grace. Again, this is neutrality. It only makes it possible to be saved. So you must be baptized to remove that original sin, to take off the sin that was, that was with you in your birth, but every sin you commit after that, you need to continue to heal your sin nature. That sanctification is that you continually save yourself. This is why the church has instituted penances and all these things, because you have to pay for your sin. 
And what really struck me after this whole study is their focus on suffering. There's a reason why you'll see a crucifix, meaning a cross with Jesus on it. There is very little joy in Roman Catholic doctrine because Jesus is, the whole focus is on Jesus suffering. Jesus, in their estimation, the way they speak of it, he's still suffering. Because Jesus suffered, you need to suffer. So that's why you have to do all these other things to make up what was lacking in Christ. And so they focus on Jesus' death. That's why he's still on, on the cross. We are people of the living. Everyone so far, they're people of death. Um, one more, and if I get anything wrong here, Ms. Pat will, will correct me later. This one I call Sunday Sabbath is for Satan. These are the Seventh-day Adventists. They call themselves Seventh-day Adventists because if you worship on Sunday, which is the first day, it is a mark of the beast. We are ministers of Satan, ladies and gentlemen, according to the official teachings of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. This is another fun one because on the surface, they use a lot of scripture and it sounds so close. But even within the church, there's not agreement of whether Jesus is, is God or not or if there is a trinity. Uh, the, uh, in the original teachings of Seventh-day Adventism, Jesus is, again, the archangel Michael. Ellen B. White, their uh, prophetess who basically determines everything, says that he was exalted by the Father. Basically, he was promoted by God to sonship, something he earned. And, you know, like the Jehovah's Witnesses, they emphasize Jesus as an example for a sinless life. They will talk about the resurrection, but the emphasis is always on Jesus is our example that you can live perfectly. Jesus did it so you can do it. So you must do all of these, these things. They will say that salvation is by grace through faith, but... It must be maintained by continual obedience, um, including health observances. It's why we have hospitals. If you talk to someone in Seventh-day Adventism, the focus is always on what you eat and what you do and all of these external things because Jesus didn't do enough. Jesus' atonement was not complete. And to clarify that, in 1844, according to the teaching of Seventh-day Adventism, Jesus, that was when he ascended into his high priestly role, which they completely distort. According to them, he is still shedding and atoning blood every second for every sin since 1844. His blood is still flowing at this very moment for sin because Jesus had not finished it. And you must repent and do good work so that Jesus will shed his blood for you ongoing. Am I good so far, Pat? Okay. And so with them, there is no eternal life. The official teaching is that when you die, the breath goes back to God and it exists in God's memory um, and the wicked are annihilated. Also a very encouraging gospel, right? And so one more, since we're short on time for extra credit. Um, since we're short on time, I'll throw one more in there. Islam. Jesus was a prophet. Jesus was crucified, but he did not die. He either survived and you know, moved away by his disciples or someone died in his place. Uh, God spared him. He did ascend into heaven. He will come back again, but he has nothing to do with salvation. So I was as quickly as I could kind of run you through the predominant views on Jesus' death and resurrection. What do they all have in common? They all claim to be the only true religion. They all downplay or almost ignore the resurrection. And they all strangely place more emphasis on his death than on his life. They are all religions of death. Because in them, there is no assurance of salvation because Jesus didn't accomplish anything. It still requires you. But we, we focus on life because through Christ's resurrection, we have new life in him. That is why we are a joyful people. That is why we celebrate. But if Jesus did not die and atone for sin perfectly by rising again and completing it all and seating on the right hand of God as confirmation that all this is done in the power of the Father, it's a different gospel. And there is no life in it. 
And if it's not that, then it is not finished. It's still ongoing and it's still up to you. No wonder so many people are burdened. And we have to be watchful for these things because this stuff is subtle. You hear them say the same words and the same things. It's not easy to catch at first. But when you dig deeper, this is dangerous. We must embrace the resurrection and we rejoice in it because of what Christ has done. So quickly, I want to give you the biblical approach. Colossians 1. Such a great chapter. But, and I could have went many places. If you want more research, uh, go to 1 Corinthians 15. Colossians 1, starting in verse 19. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. He's God. And through him to reconcile all things to himself. All things. Not just a little bit, not only partially. Everything is in Christ. Whether on earth or in heaven. All created things. Everything will be reconciled through Christ. He's the answer to all the world's problems. How? Making peace by the blood of the cross. It's not just partial peace. It's not just potential peace. Not an opportunity for peace. But peace. And what does it have to do with us? And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds. He has now reconciled us in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That is what our Savior accomplished. He reconciled us completely in order to present you holy and blameless, not mostly good, and you continue yourself blameless, spotless, without anything else required for you to do, above reproach before him. We will stand before him guiltless because he took our guilt and our sin. That is the gospel we proclaim, and it's very different than the gospel of many other people wearing the name of Christian or talking about the name of Jesus. So be very careful when someone talks about the name of Jesus and the death and resurrection that you ask good questions. So our theology should always lead to doxology. And I know there's a lot of notes there. If you have any questions on any of that stuff, you need resources, let me know. Um, and so we're going to close, and you guys can come on up. We're going to close with a hymn in uh, uh, Rock of Ages. The language here is so beautiful because what we have just learned, we're going to sing. And if you have not studied this song and, and paid attention to the lyrics, I want to read them for you. Rock of Ages, cleft from me, let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed Here's what's important. Be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. The symbolism here, what the writer is getting at, that because of his sacrifice, not only the wrath of God is satisfied, this double cure, but the righteousness of Christ is given to us through his blood, through his pure side. And he expounds, not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy law demands. Could my zeal no respite? No. Is there ever any end to this? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. All my works, all my labors, all my zeal, all my tears could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. He goes on, nothing in my hand I bring. Nothing you have to add to it. Every one of these other religions is Jesus plus something else. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to thy cross I cling. Naked, come to thee for dress. Helpless, look to thee for grace. Foul, foul, I to the fountain fly. Wash me, Savior, or I die. Let's sing these words in response.